Before we begin today's podcast, I want to mention the very sad news that one of the greatest Talmudic Chachamim of our time, Rav Chaim Kanievsky Zatzal, died about two hours before this past Shabbos. I had no personal connection with Rav Kanievsky, but by all accounts, he was one of the most sterling exemplars of Hasmada, that is, absolute and tremendous dedication to learning Torah around the clock. He apparently finished Kol HaTorah Kula, the entire written and oral Torah, every single year. And his genius was massively enhanced by incredibly hard work. Despite this grueling schedule, he made time for people in need from across Israel. He was modest and lived in a simple apartment. In so many ways, he was an example that we should emulate. There are people far better equipped than I to discuss his legacy and his greatness, as well as some of the ways the politicians have misused his pronouncements for their own purposes. But that's a discussion for another time. Today, for those of us who aren't part of the Haredi world, we have to look at his dedication to Torah and his humility, his righteousness, as an inspiration. They should inspire us to make these a more intense part of our own lives as well. May his memory be a blessing. The rates of both marijuana use and vaping were significantly lower than the national average. The rates of drinking were higher, and the rates of binge drinking were strikingly higher, which points to the fact that we, as a modern Orthodox community, have a problem in this area. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is the Orthodox Conundrum. This is the Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. Amar Rava, Chayav Adam Lebesume Bepuria, Ad Delo Yada, Ben Aror Haman, Lebaruch Mordechai. Masachat Megillah Daf Zayin Amudbet 7b asserts in the name of Rava that a person is obligated to get drunk on Purim until he doesn't know the difference between cursed is Haman and blessed is Mordechai. Let's leave aside the various interpretations of the statement and the halachic issues associated with it. The bottom line is that on Purim, people get drunk with halachic license. And now that Purim is behind us, it's a worthwhile exercise to ask about the place of drinking in our Orthodox communities. From my conversation with Rabbi Tuli Harkstark and Dr. Rivka Schwartz, I learned that among high school students, it actually has a troubling role that we really need to investigate. And our conversation extended beyond issues with alcohol and further into questions regarding substance abuse in general, gambling, and more. It turns out that scientific surveys have demonstrated that yeshiva high school students are involved in serious antisocial behaviors, and some of them at a significantly higher rate than American high school students in general. We'll get to that in just a moment. First, please subscribe to the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please rate and review us on iTunes to help other people discover this podcast. We're growing every month, and that's thanks to you, our listeners, who help us get the word out. So please continue to share wherever and however you can. Become a Jewish Coffeehouse team member on Patreon. Patreon subscribers get bonus episodes, merch, and more. And in particular, now we'll be having all sorts of bonus material in preparation for the upcoming holiday of Pesach. Of course, by joining Patreon, you help to promote the Orthodox Conundrum, so please do so today. The link is in the description of this podcast. Finally, podcasting today has become one of the most effective and fun ways of promoting your business, your cause, yourself. 
and JCH Podcast Production can help you make it happen. We work with our partners to create distinctive, successful podcasts that are distinguished by their high-quality content and exceptional sound. JCH partners with companies, organizations, and individuals who see podcasting as a critical vehicle to get their message to a wider audience. They recognize that the surest way to attract the right audience is for their podcast to stand out for its inventiveness and premium quality. We're committed to building a team to help you create the most entertaining and most effective podcast possible, because when you succeed, we succeed. JCH Podcast Production offers individualized packages that empower you to build your perfect podcast in the way that best promotes you and your message while playing to your strengths. We'll support you from the initial idea, through the setup process, through promotion and release, through your first milestones and beyond. And as data comes in, we'll help you tweak it to make it even better. Go to jchpodcasts.com to find out more and to sign up for a free consultation. Let's work together to make a phenomenal and successful podcast. Rabbi Tuli Harkstark is the founding principal of SAR High School and dean of Mahon Siach, a research arm of SAR which seeks to shape the high school into a thinking institution by cultivating teacher-driven research and scholarship focused on questions central to Jewish education, curriculum, and culture. He previously served as rabbi of Congregation Keter Torah in Teaneck, New Jersey, and as the associate principal of Judaic Studies at SAR Academy. He is the recipient of the 2017 Covenant Award for Excellence in Jewish Education. Dr. Rivka Press-Schwartz serves as Associate Principal, General Studies, and Co-Director of Mahon Siach at SAR High School, and as a Research Fellow at the Shalom Hartman Institute of North America. She earned her PhD in History of Science from Princeton University. Dr. Schwartz has spent more than 20 years in the field of Jewish secondary and post-secondary education. She writes and lectures widely about issues of contemporary importance in the North American Orthodox community. Rabbi Tuli Harkstark and Dr. Rivka Schwartz, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. Pleasure to be here. Just over a year ago, you co-authored an article in the Jewish Link that was very disturbing, and you acknowledged there that there's both good news and bad news. We're going to talk about the bad news primarily today. The good news was relating to the high school students' motivation in keeping a halakhic lifestyle, and it seems perhaps some of their substance abuse was not as bad as the general population, particularly with regard to marijuana. You can tell me if I'm wrong. This is how I understood it. However, the bad news was regarding drinking in general and binge drinking in particular, as well as some other antisocial behaviors. So let's start off by talking about the findings of this survey. What was this survey that you were citing? I actually like, if it's okay to talk uh, uh, for a few minutes, uh, for a moment, about the backdrop as to how we got to this in the first place, because I think the context is also important. We have arrived at a place in our community that uh, over the past uh, decade plus, we're talking about substance abuse um, has become more accepted and uh, open to be, you know, for acknowledgement. Um, what prompted this effort was um, a focus, uh, shifting the focus, a drop from the issue of abuse to the issue of use. And our sense um, as administrators in school is that the use of substances had grown and become kind of a part of normative culture. I think when we all went to school, we probably have memories of kids who were involved in one connected one form of substance or another. Uh, it was a little bit more underground, I'd say, in my experience of saying it anecdotally. And the feeling is that this has become more of the fabric of social life in uh, the Shiva League high school world and part of the party culture. So what we set out to do um, was to try to leverage the efforts of uh, numbers of schools, bring them together to try to see whether our collective efforts, now that we're acknowledging that something was out there, whether we could do something about what we call party party culture. 
And we brought a number of administrators uh, together to spend some time talking about it. And we ended up discovering a program in Iceland at first, and then out in the West Coast at the University of Washington, which are public health focused. Um, my last sentence on this will be that we feel like, you know, in schools, the common approach has been uh, some combination of whack-a-mole, uh, punitive, finding the people who are doing the wrong things, and also some kind of education by bringing in speakers. And what we were struck with is we came to understand the question we were raising was a public health question based on the projects that we found in Iceland and at the University of Washington. And so that brought us to one of the first steps of taking this on was to gather the data in order to understand our community best. And so I'll uh, let Dr. Schwartz start to give a little bit of a sense of what that survey was about, how tested it was, and some of the information that we, we drew, we got from it. So the idea of a public health approach, again, is that we're not looking for individual miscreants, individual wrongdoers to treat them, but we're looking to get a sense of the community as a whole. And the first thing we needed to do is gather data. We had the experience of our HeartStark had this experience many times. I had this experience many times. You'd say to kids, what percentage of kids in your class do you think are drinking or using drugs? And you get these wildly varying estimates all over the place because we were all making up numbers. We had no idea what the data looked like. And so once we connected to this group, this research group out of the University of Washington, um, they directed us to a survey and research firm that would help us do a statistically valid scientific survey of the population of modern Orthodox high schools. We mostly surveyed in the New York area, although we had a number of schools that participated also in Massachusetts, in Illinois, and in California. A total of 20 schools participated in our surveying over the course of two years. We surveyed in February of 2019 and again in February of 2020. So it wasn't that all 20 schools participated in both years, but between the two years, we had 20 schools participating in the surveying, thousands of 10th and 12th graders. The reason why we surveyed 10th and 12th graders is because the federal government has been gathering data on substance use among adolescents going back before I was born, an undertaking that's called Monitoring the Future, and they survey 8th, 10th, and 12th graders. So to give us a comparable base for the data, we were surveying 10th and 12th graders. We did not end up either year surveying 8th graders, although that would have been desirable, it's tough enough to ask 10th and 12th graders in our community a lot of really detailed questions about their substance use and what crimes they might or might not have committed and what all kinds of other trouble they might have gotten up to. Mm -hmm. We didn't think we'd be able to get that into the eighth grades. And to this point, we haven't yet. Um, and then we gathered, this was the, the first time that we gathered this kind, anyone had gathered this kind of systematic data about substance use in our community. When I share the data with people now, they say, oh yeah, of course. But going into it wasn't what I was expecting to see. And I'm not sure that it's what many people were expecting to see. I also just want to note, I'm sorry to, to interrupt you, but that to make sure that it's clear that this was each, the 10th and 12th graders, because it was two consecutive years, these are two totally different groups of kids. One, about 3,000 in one survey, about 2,500 in the, in the second survey. And uh, so that, that you know, when we talk about it, what was extremely striking about it is how similar the data was from one year to the next, even though it was a totally different sample of students. Yeah, so I would say the two top line findings, as you summarize them, were that our kids' uh, rates of marijuana use and vaping were significantly below the national average. Now, you might say, you know, don't give yourself a pat on the back. We would expect that in a community organized and run and motivated the way ours is, that the rates of substance use would be lower. But we really had no idea. And the rates of both marijuana use and vaping were significantly lower than the national average. The rates of drinking were higher and the rates of binge drinking were strikingly higher which points to the fact that we as a modern Orthodox community have a problem in this area. 
for many years, I have heard the following line said, that Orthodox Jews have a lower problem with alcoholism in general because they're so used to drinking on Shabbat and Kiddush on Yom Tov. Kiddush is just a normal part of life. Therefore, the Mayim Genuvim Mimtaku, the idea of stolen waters being sweeter, doesn't apply here. Kids are used to it. It's not considered something extremely uh, deviant or special such that they would be attracted to it. It sounds like you're saying, or the survey is saying, that that's ridiculous. It's just not true. Yeah, I think we've been telling ourselves a lot of just so stories as a community, whether it's to make ourselves feel good about stuff or to justify things that we might otherwise question, whether they're problematic or to explain why we're better. And the data do not support that. Can you define binge drinking, please? What's the difference between that and just general drinking? Okay, so there's a slight difference between the definition of binge drinking as is usually used in public health circles and as it was used in this survey. In public health circles in general, they usually differentiate. It's binge drinking is defined as a certain number of drinks in a sitting. The usual public health number actually differentiates between men and women because how drunk you get depends on your body size. Men, on average, are bigger than women. But for purposes of this survey, they asked students, have you had five or more drinks in a sitting in the past two weeks? That was the question that was asked to students. The survey, because it was done at the end of February, was not within two weeks of Purim, and it wasn't within two weeks of Pesach. So there was no confounding of the data by, oh, yeah, but, you know, Purim is once a year. That doesn't really count. Or, okay, at Pesach, they have four cups of wine. So that skews the data, but doesn't really count. Um, and so when we saw that a significant percentage of kids in the centrist and modern Orthodox community broadly, and a much higher percentage than in the United States as a whole, reported having five or more drinks in a sitting within the past two weeks, that's a data point that we have to take really seriously. Well, what were the percentages? It might be higher than the national average, but the percentage is 2%. That's still 2% higher than I wanted, but it's not a large percent. I'm guessing that the problem is much more significant than I'm suggesting. Yes, it was not 2%. It was somewhere between a quarter and a third. Wow. There are a lot of questions I have. I'll ask both of you. I don't know who would like to answer any of them. I'll just throw it out there. First of all, what explains the difference between the lower averages when it comes to vaping and marijuana and the higher averages when it comes to alcohol abuse or alcohol use? Why would those be disconnected from each other? What does that say about our community? What does it say about how Orthodox kids relate to these substances? I would start by saying that I think that there's um, the, the logic that you had proposed earlier might be that the opposite logic is true. I think that the accessibility of alcohol hmm. um, in our homes both because, you know, part of the Jewish, you know, I, I don't think it's at all about Kiddush and Seder wine. I don't think, you know, that, that that's that's not the way that we make the connection. That's not what kids are are drinking. They're not getting drunk on Manischewitz. Exactly. Correct. But they do see, um, you know, a lot, a lot of our families have alcohol and has become much more accepted to have high class alcohol in our homes. And one of the things that we maybe would want to talk about a little bit further on is the correlation uh, what kids see being modeled and have the co-indicator of uh, seeing adults uh, drinking and the students actually, the young, uh, you know, younger people actually drinking, those two things are are connected to each other. So for us, uh, accessibility, uh, you, know, you have to kind of do the study, try to do the cross tabs as best as you can to create a narrative. Uh, but our first thoughts are accessibility is enormously important. Modeling is enormously important. And our senses um, that... Uh, wealth might have something to do with it as well. Okay, I want to talk about all of those factors. I want to first talk about modeling, though, because once again, I'm coming at this as an innocent and perhaps extraordinarily naive perspective, but I would think that a lot of parents are modeling behavior that involves alcohol, but also involves alcohol in moderation. I'm guessing 
that many of these kids who are binge drinking see their parents make a l'chaim, but only one. Are you saying that's not true, or are the students taking the modeling in a different direction, meaning modeling one glass versus five glasses is the same thing for a lot of them because they're young and immature? I'm not sure that that's the case. We have data that specifically asks part of the survey. It's an extensive survey and it asks a lot of questions about a lot of things. And we are now doing further data analysis on the survey to see what more we can glean from the answers that we got. But there is a question on the survey that specifically asks, how many adults do you know who've gotten drunk or high in the past year? Ranging from zero to five or more. And uh, one of our collaborators on this survey, Rabbi Joseph Beta of the Yeshiva Flappish High School, and he was looking at this data and this question, said five or more adults you know have gotten drunk or high in the past year. What do you live in a bar? But a very significant number of our kids know more than five adults who've gotten drunk or high in the past year. That's not just they responsibly had a l'chaim. Now you can break this data out further. Does adult mean my parent? Does it mean my sibling who's 27? Does it mean anyone I see in shul? So there's room to further disaggregate that data. Are we talking about, you know, specifically parental modeling or adult modeling in general? But a meaningful number of our kids are telling us that they know numerous adults who've gotten drunk or high. And unsurprisingly, the more adults you know who've gotten drunk or high, the more likely you are yourself to have consumed substances. I happen to like Rabbi Beta very much, so I'm I'm glad you cited him. (laughs) But I can hear him saying that. I think that that adult modeling piece is a factor, but I, I wouldn't want uh, to, I don't think that we claim that that's the the significant or the most significant factor. It is a factor, but there are, are I think other things that are at play in terms of what the what's socially acceptable, what kids see in terms of what they're watching, what the expectation is in college or how kids are growing up. Um, so there, there we wouldn't want to uh, particularly lay you know the you know say that this is about uh, modeling from adults. There are a lot of factors at play, but. What it does make us think is that this is a community issue. And, um, you know, very often we like to say we want to locate it very specifically in one. It's a school problem, it's a school problem, it's a camp problem. This feels to us from the data that we're seeing, this is something that we have to take on as a, as a community, all of us together of all ages. Well, Rabbi Harkstark, when you talk about it not just being modeling, there are other, call them risk factors or other elements that contribute toward this. What are some of the other factors that you see? Well, on the one hand, I'd say that it, it seems like uh, social life in general. When, we, when kids see their older siblings, see what goes on in you know college campuses and the degree of access of accessibility and partying, it's just like the social circle on its own is a very strong factor. I think that there there is a way in which we need to broaden out the conversation to talk not only about why alcohol per se, but why the resort to substances altogether and in high degrees. And one of the things that the survey uh, does is um, uh, inquire about protective factors and, and risk factors in general, uh, which means it asks questions about students' uh, experience uh, with family at home, um, in school, and with their peers. And there are a range of uh, what they call protective factors. Um, the higher the group scores in terms of uh, family attachment or pro-social involvement, the, you know, the, the lower the risk and uh, the more that there are risk factors that are higher, such as negative uh, peer-to-peer uh, impact and the risk that, that creates, uh, you know, greater risk. So I think a lot of these pieces come together. Part of what our job is to, is, is to create a profile where we see where are the weak spots and then try to figure out how to 
um, intervene in uh, what's the best intervention, most purposeful intervention. So we're pointing to some a weak spot as it's alcohol, particularly, although there are other substances, but alcohol is where that, that helps us focus so that before that it was, well, it could be vaping, it could be marijuana, it's mostly alcohol we see. Uh, and we can also point to uh, when it comes to risk factors and protective factors, where are we doing well and what's an area where we need to be, where we need to do better. And Griffin, maybe we want to talk through some of some of those. I want to talk about two things. The first thing I want to say, though, is that while we were talking here, I went back and just double checked my data. A quarter to a third of kids um, having engaged in binge drinking in the past two weeks is specifically the number of 12th graders. The number of 10th graders is lower as you might expect, but all of our numbers, 12th graders, 10th graders, and the aggregate numbers are significantly higher than the country as a whole. So significantly. I wanna, yeah, I want about a third higher than the country as a whole. So that's a very meaningful difference. Um, for 12th graders, it's even more than that. So now I wanna say two things about contributing factors here. The first is I'm not a prevention science researcher, I'm a history teacher, but over the course of a number of years of working on this, beyond the scope of doing the survey, I've spent a lot of time engaging with the prevention science literature. And I found something that was surprising to me. Again, once I tell it to people, they say, oh yeah, I would have expected that, but I didn't expect it going in, which is that in the United States as a whole, consumption of alcohol increases with income. People who make more money consume more alcohol. I don't know that I would have predicted that. And as you talk to people, we, we took this show on the road a little bit. We met with groups of community rabbis in different places to share with them some of our survey results, to take it beyond the survey, Hartstick said, beyond the realm of education. This isn't just about schools, it's about the whole community. And as we shared this with community rabbis, we started to hear from them tales of what Shabbos and Yom Tif celebrations look like in some places, in some parts of our community, with very significant amounts of very expensive alcohol being consumed and a culture around the getting and tasting and enjoying of hard to access or expensive bottles of whatever it is, uh, in a way that I think, again, is part of the culture of our community and might contribute to what kids are seeing or modeling. So the role that wealth, material success, access um, to all of this plays in this is one important thing to think about. Switching gears very significantly now and coming back to the school, Rabbi Hartstock referred to risk and protective factors. And of all the things we saw in the survey, and, and we have tons of data and lots of fascinating data, maybe at some point in this conversation we'll get to talk about gambling and maybe we won't, but we have data on that. We have all kinds of great data. But of all the things we saw after the binge drinking, I think the thing that was the hardest to see is that there is a protective factor called school reward for pro-social behavior. Right, pro-social is the opposite of antisocial. And what is that? That's students' answers to questions. If I do the right thing, how likely is the school to let me know? How likely is the school to let my parents know? And for two years in a row, with two different populations of kids, these thousands of kids in our centrist and modern orthodox community rated their schools as less likely to give them positive feedback for doing the right thing than that sampling of American kids as a whole rate their teachers in American schools as a whole. We have yeshiva day schools that are full of incredibly devoted educators who are making this their life's work because of a sense of mission and values and Torah and Masorah and everything else. And our kids are saying that we are less likely to give them positive feedback when they do the right thing than random American kids from a sampling of public and private schools report that their teachers are. So aside from the fact, that's a little bit of a kick in the gut as a, as a teacher. And what does that mean? And it's two years in a row and the data are consistent. So we have to take it seriously. But so what does that mean? So another partner of ours in this undertaking, Rabbi Israel Kamenetsky, who was a Rosh Hashiva principal at uh, DRS, offered us the following suggestion, which I think is very compelling, which is that in our community, we expect 
so much of our kids. And those are just baseline expectations. You should show up for a minute and you should learn and you should do well in school and you should be respectful to your parents and you should engage in chesed and you should do co-curriculars and you should get into college and, 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 and. There are so many things that are just baseline expectations. And if kids meet those expectations, we don't say you're amazing, you're awesome, fantastic, you came to shop, like that's what you're supposed to do, come to shop first every day and then daven and then go learn and then play on the sports team and then, and then, and then. And if you don't, that's somehow a negative thing. And that maybe we're in a community with such high levels of expectation and so many different axes along which we expect things of kids that the kids aren't feeling like they're being recognized, appreciated, seen for what they're doing right. And they're just feeling that they're being seen maybe more for what they aren't doing yet or aren't living up to and how that's affecting how they feel about us, their educators, how they feel about their schools, how they feel about the whole way of life we're trying to get them to buy into and what role that plays in some of these other behaviors. When we discovered that that data, the most the, it was, uh, you know, I started to pay attention to my own behavior in davening with uh, with kids. And just to count, how often do I say, great job, you davened so nicely today, and how often do I say, please stop talking? Uh, meaning there's a, the smallest behavior, which is kind of intuitive to a teacher's life sometimes. And in uh, marital relationships, John Gottman says you're supposed to have a five to one ratio of positive interactions to uh, to negative, uh, positive statements to negative statements. And when you think about Davening as an example, we need to turn that around. I think that plays out in, in many, many different ways in the life of school, despite how well-intentioned we are. What you're both saying now, I'm you said a kick in the gut, and I definitely feel that right now as an educator myself, or at least as a former educator, I feel this is almost an indictment, a real indictment of the way that we do business in the yeshiva world and the modern orthodox day school world, et cetera. I'm not even sure where to go with that, but it certainly is worth talking about at a different point. I want to go back to something you said before, before we move on to some other of the issues that you mentioned just now. I'm going to play devil's advocate. I don't agree with this, but I want to see what you would answer someone who would argue the following. The survey is discussing binge drinking and alcohol use. Someone might say, sure, in college, for example, there's lots of binge drinking and alcohol use. That doesn't necessarily lead to long-term negative behavior. It's something which people go through at a certain stage. Someone might argue that the binge drinking that students are doing in high school is a stage, and it's not something which we want to promote, but does it really have long-term damage for most of these kids? Again, I don't agree with that statement, but I'd like to see how you answer that statement. Dr. Schwartz? I'm the non-prevention scientist putting on my prevention science hat for a minute. Um, it is very clear from the science that the biggest predictor or one of the biggest predictors of whether someone is going to become a problem user of alcohol is the age of onset of first use. The younger you are when you start drinking, the more likely you are to become a problem drinker. That is borne out in all of the data. This is, you know, again, this is prevention science 101, which means kids binge drinking in high school is just not the equivalent of kids binge drinking in college. Their brains are less developed. They're more plastic. In this sense, that means more malleable. They're more likely to become dependent on alcohol. And the younger they are when they start, the more of a problem that's likely to be. So that's number one. Number two, bad stuff does sometimes happen under the influence of alcohol. Sometimes bad things are averted, Baruch Hashem, and sometimes bad things happen under the influence of alcohol. And we will just leave that at that. Number three, and Rabbi Hartstark raised this earlier, even if nothing terrible happens, the Simchas Torah that gets out of hand doesn't end with anything worse than a kid passing out drunk on the streets of one of our suburban communities, which, by the way, happens. The Saturday night party that gets out of hand doesn't end with anything worse than the police being called to a home in one of our suburban communities, which absolutely happens. And we clean it all up, we make it go away, and no one has a record, it's all fine. We think there's something problematic about a school system in a community that's trying to transmit certain kinds of values. 
about Torah and mitzvah observance and commitment to a certain way of life. And then the idea that we're going to shrug off if kids' enjoyment or relaxation or blowing off steam is around this kind of activity, using this kind of substances to get themselves to this kind of altered mental state. It seems so inconsistent with everything that we're trying to do to then shrug this off and say kids will be kids. We don't, that's really not how, I mean, it's not my sense of how we as a community approach a lot of different sorts of issues and values and everything else. We don't say kids will be kids. We say we're trying to raise you to be certain kinds of people and certain kinds of Jews. And shrugging all this seems very inconsistent with that. I also want to go back to what prompted this effort in, in the first place, which was thinking about the large middle of uh, students. It's what's the what's considered the norm. So there will always be, you know, we, we don't have, um, I'm not a fan of, you know, I'm not arguing for abstinence in general. I don't think that's the kind of claim. There will always be people who will be drinking even up to the extreme, but that students um, who are just the regular, I'm joining the social community, for them to feel like to be a part of the social community, to the degree to which uh, there's a correlation between being part of the social community and having to be open to you know drinking, drinking too much is problematic for us as a society. And that's why I feel like it's important to use language that focuses also on the use of substances, not just the abuse of substances, because it is about the relationship between uh, regular, normal socializing and the use of substances and trying to pry those apart. I also would like to make a you know a distinguish between uh, drinking alcohol and uh, getting drunk. Um, I think that there's an appropriate use for alcohol. I'm not a fan of uh, necessarily, I obviously respect schools that decide to go drive, but I'm not sure that that's the only response that kids should not see adults um, drinking. You know, when I have kids over for a Shabbaton in, in my house and making Kiddush on Shabbos morning, it's a lesser question. I make Kiddush on, um, on, on alcohol. So should I not, you know, is the correct modeling to not do what I normally do, or is the correct modeling to do what I normally do, but explain what it is. And when I've had that circumstance, I've always said to kids, I make kiddush on alcohol, and I just want to tell you the rule that I live by. I feel like if it's legal and you're not getting drunk, I think that there's an appropriate way to to, to consume. And binge trade, there are certain values that can be communicated and modeled properly um, as well. That leads me to some other questions, Rabbi Harkestark. I'm curious what you think, and maybe there's data to support this or deny it. Do parents know that their kids are binge drinking or perhaps abusing alcohol or even drinking alcohol? In other words, my question really is, is this something which kids are hiding from their parents by and large? And this also relates back to what Dr. Schwartz said before about affluence and being associated with and affiliated with expensive bottles of whiskey. Do parents give their kids alcohol? Is that what's happening? And they understand this and figure it's not a big deal? Or is it something that's happening behind closed doors and the parents would be shocked if they actually knew what was going on? I know there's no one answer, but in general, what's your general feeling about it? I don't think that the parents are aware and I don't think that the parents are providing. I think that they're, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to find out the information and it's also easier to not know the information. And uh, I think it's also important to point out that I, I don't think that kids are actually consuming this expensive alcohol. I think the kids are consuming, um, you know, cheaper drinks. I also want to make sure that we're not giving uh, you know false impression in that sense. I think that the presence and the treasuring and cherishing of it creates a certain kind of um, environment, but that's not actually what, what, uh, what kids are consuming. But I think it's very hard. We run parent programs and um, just from the attendance, the sense that we get is it's much easier for parents to feel like, I don't think this is about me and my, my kid. 
And I think that's like a natural tendency without, uh, you know, just because just that's, that's what you hope is the case. Dr. Schwartz, is that your experience as well? So I will say that we have data on all of this. Asked kids, I mean, a survey asks kids, if you drank alcohol more than a taste or a sip in the past 12 months, where did you get it? And where did you consume it? And so the, the greatest, the answer, and kids can answer multiple answers. It's not an either or. You can say all of the above if the answer is all of the above. The one that gets the most answers is I got it as a party. I got it at a party. I got it from someone I know under age 21. I got it from home with my parents' permission. Now, you might say, well, there's different kinds of drinking. There's party drinking and at-home drinking. But I got it at home with my parents' permission is a very um, substantial positive response around give or take 50% of kids in the survey are saying if they drank alcohol in the past year, one of the ways they got it was at home with their parents' permission. And then where you drank alcohol, at my home with my parents' permission, more than half the kids who drank alcohol in the past year say they drank it at home with their parents' permission. A very large chunk at my home or someone else's home without any parent permission. Um, so there are different contexts in which alcohol is being procured and which alcohol is being drunk. But straw buyers, kids sending someone else to the store to buy alcohol for them, may be a real phenomenon. It is also a real phenomenon, both parents providing alcohol to kids and parents having supplies of alcohol in their home that are accessible to kids, kids drinking alcohol in their own homes with parental permission, without parental permission. There's a lot of all this going on, which, again, I think speaks to that we can't locate this in. There's a problem out there when the kids go out there to the bad party. There's a broader communal issue that needs to be addressed. How would you relate the issue of affluence, which you related to before and talked about before, how would you relate, or more specifically, what should we do about that? Affluence, we're not going to ask everyone to give up their affluence, but what exactly is the issue in affluence that seems to be a correlating factor when it comes to binge drinking or drinking in general or substance abuse? And what should affluent communities or families do about that? They are what they are. I, wa- I want to just point for for a moment to the the other part that brought us to thinking about affluence is the, as a factor was the gambling statistic. There, there are a number of gambling uh, kinds of categories, and there are some that we rate lower than national uh, averages, betting on cards, um, and actually gambling in general, we are lower than national average. But um, in terms of uh, betting on sports, betting on, on uh, video poker, uh, those categories, we are uh, higher than national average. And what we've been talking, the conversations that we've been having lately, just anecdotally, is you know, we have many you know, teachers who say kids are betting on everything. They'll bet on you know, what's, what we're having for lunch today, how many foul shots you're going to hit when you're at the line. It's become very common. And I think that um, it's very important to talk about it, to raise it as a conversation, um, at home, I uh, was struck in watching um, some, you know, playoff baseball. The degree to which behind home plate, now the ads that keep switching over, how much of it is focused on DraftKings and and gambling. So it's just become very much a part of, you know, it's okay to be a sports fan, and now being a sports fan it involves uh, money a lot more. So um, I think that it's seen as harmless, and I think that it requires a lot more conscious. Uh, talking to and educating around in a countercultural kind of way. And I think the place to start with that is just creating uh, communal awareness that this is a, a problem uh, so that we can uh, put it on the table and talk about it more. But at the same time, as you said, sports gambling in general is going up in the world, but it's going up even more in Orthodox communities, or at least among Orthodox high school students, according to these surveys. So what would be the cause of that, to the best of your knowledge? Why would they be more likely to bet on sports than the general population? 
I don't have data that specifically give me that answer, but if I have to guess, I would just guess it's because the monorothlex community is an affluent community. You need to have a certain amount of extra money to be able to do this and indulge in it. Uh, and again, and we know that in America as a whole, alcohol consumption is also correlated with affluence. So you're right, we're not gonna get an affluent community to stop being an affluent community. There is a piece of this that is just about engaging everyone in this, as opposed to, I didn't know that was a problem, I didn't think about it as a problem, I didn't think it was my job to address the problem. The goal of these efforts that we're talking about and the interventions that we're talking about is to mobilize an entire community. That means instead of the shul rabbi saying, I, I just, I can't speak to this, then I'm the, you know, the stick in the mud rabbi who's getting up and hectoring my congregants about not drinking. And the school principal saying, what do you want from us? The kids are doing it on Saturday night. They're doing it outside of school. How are we supposed to control the drinking? And everybody's saying, I don't quite know how to get my hands around this. The idea would be to get an entire community together in shared effort to articulate values around this, to think about how to foster those values as a community, to elevate the protective factors, to lower the risk factors. This is not a pie in the sky or a naive or a dream. As Rabbi Hardstark said, the, the uh, intervention that was launched in Iceland, which has been underway for something like 30 years now, has been enormously effective. The kinds of interventions that the research group out of the University of Washington has overseen, which are called Communities That Care, exist in hundreds of communities across the United States and have been very successful. The thing about them is, as you can tell from the way we're talking about mobilizing an entire community to shift communal norms and to shift what's done in a community, these are not quick fixes. These are not bringing an amazing speaker to speak to your parents and your kids, and next week. We're talking about decade-long undertakings, and that's not, it's, it's ironic for a community that, you know, that we sit down every day to study 1,500-year-old Gemaras and 800-year-old Rishonim, that we keep thinking in the time frame that we work in in terms of communal interventions is maybe the 10 months of a school year, and maybe not even that. And to start talking about a decade-long intervention I know a lot of people get very nervous. I'm not quite sure why that is. Maybe we think that it, ma it makes us bad believers in the coming of Mashiach or bad Zionists to talk about a decade-long intervention. Uh, but nevertheless, we, we have been working for a while to mobilize communal support and backing for this kind of intervention. Again, research has shown that it works all over the country. It's been shown to work all over Europe. Um, we just have to be willing to, to commit to the long, slow, hard process of change and the, the hope that the right speaker or the right quick fix, there will be no alcohol at Kiddush and Shul, and that's going to solve everything, is very clearly not what's going to do it here. I think that it's, it's important to, to think about uh, this effort. It, it right now can be focused on particular areas, but the way to think about this over the long term, even assuming, you know, we, we can say this is a decade-long effort in order to have an impact on a particular substance use um, issue. But if we think about it as a, as a public health model, the idea is, Get to know your community, understand where you're at, understand what the issues are, and then figure out a way to, for an intervention that will be, uh, you know, purposeful. Our assumption would be that if you make progress in one area, something else is going to pop up elsewhere. And part of what the model is setting up is the idea of every two years taking stock, being able to, on a communal level, say, how are we doing? What are our weak strengths? What are our weaknesses? Um, and just being able to, and then figure out a, a mechanism to, uh, you know, make things better where we can where we can improve, and just having that as a as a model can be enormously strengthening. I think for our for our community. Then let's talk about that decade long effort to try to create some various forms of intervention. 
Obviously, it has to be adjusted as time goes on. But what would be examples of types of intervention that could potentially be effective? What would you perhaps recommend the community start with, even knowing that that won't be enough? It's just a starting point. What are examples of forms of intervention that might be effective? After we gathered the data, we had some extensive conversations with our team that we work with at the University of Washington. Uh, we'll have a whole uh, array of potential programs, and we are in the midst of embarking on trainings to, be, to to begin a process of intervention around these specific issues. Uh, Dr. Schwartz, I think, and it went through the training, can speak to some of what that is and some of our next steps. So the idea of the interventions here is that there are a really wide range of things targeted, again, once you gather data from your community to know what you need. So those interventions are everything from an intensive parenting program that we are working now on rolling out in our school community and helping to bring to some other school communities, which is not about tell parents to tell their kids not to drink. It's actually help parents engage with each other and with their children in conversations around their values about this, which a lot of parents are not necessarily directly speaking to their kids about. Articulating your values to your kids, helping navigate differences or friction between parents and kids, because goodness knows there's plenty of that in the preteen and teenage years, and that relates to parent-child conflict and friction within the home is definitely correlated to substance use. Um, so working on that and to to drive culture in our families and in our community around how we engage between parents and kids around these issues is something is one kind of thing that our schools are getting involved in. In a very different side of things, one of the things they did in Iceland to address a teen, the, the problem in Iceland was teenage binge drinking. You could figure that, you know, in Reykjavik in the winter, I don't know, making this up like the sun is setting at four o'clock and it's dark and there's nothing to do. So we all just sit around and drink. Um, and so they they put into place all kinds of interventions to deal with that. And one of them was the curfew for teenagers enforced by parents walking the streets. It wasn't enforced by police. Nobody was arrested. Nobody was imprisoned. Parents walked the streets at night and they saw teenagers out at night. They said, go home. You're really supposed to be home now. And for the most part, teenagers listened to that. Every time we talk about this project, we think about the fact that in our, I'm just going to talk about the New York area suburban communities and neighborhood city that I know, you know, where my kids and their friends and the other kids who participated in the survey from other schools in the New York area live. On Purim and on Simchas Torah, there are a lot of kids drinking. They're drinking in homes, they're drinking on the streets, there's all kinds of not great stuff going on. What would it look like if we had parents out on the streets, instead of the parents being locked in their room and like, oh, I didn't know, I didn't know there was anything going on, I wasn't aware of what my kids were up to. If the parents were out on the streets, walking the streets of the communities on those nights, being eyes and ears on the ground, knowing what was going on, and saying to kids, really, you should be going home right now. Yeah, I was, I was going to add to that motivation about, you know, Saturday night times are, there are intense periods in the calendar, like for the Simplest Torah, but uh, on a given Saturday night, what is considered acceptable from a parental perspective, parents talking to each other, or parents can strengthen each other in terms of what is fair to ask of my child when, uh, you know, going out on a Saturday night, like if we all need to know where you're headed, uh, where you're going, we, you know, there, there are uh, ways in which if we're working on this together in some of those spaces, I don't think that the idea would be to over-supervise and become just increasingly, you know, helicopter parents watching everything that students, that kids are doing, that's not good. But as a school, we can, you know, different places can provide different types of programming, understanding what those uh, spaces are where kids need, you know, some freedom and space and being able to create more purposeful opportunities for unhealthy uh, kind of interaction uh, feels important. And right now, there are a lot of spaces that, you know, the city is open to you to just go and hang out as you'd like, and that's not safe. 
I certainly see that here in Ramat Beit Shemesh, where I live, on a Friday night. I don't know if you know, but Friday night on the Dolave Street, which is right around the corner from me, there are hundreds and hundreds of kids hanging out all night. Some parents do walk around to try and stop them, but largely it's simply a kid's paradise, depending on how you define paradise. I'm not necessarily saying it's a paradise for the parents, but the kids think it's great. Just all those kids out on the street and behavior is not necessarily that which parents would approve of, but the kids are out doing what they want. How about some very specific reforms? You're talking about decade-long intervention, but I'll give you an example. It's very easy for me to say this because I'm not a shul rabbi. I also live in Israel where perhaps, at least in my community, this is less of a problem, and I realize it's much more politically difficult than I'm going to say. But the concept of kiddush clubs in shul, where adults leave shul during the haftarah, meaning it's not even at the end of shul. I'm talking about during shul. They leave shul during shul to go and have a l'chaim, which makes drinking exclusive it reminds me of the affluence issue because it's something special. It's usually, from what I understand, a nice bottle of whiskey or scotch. To me, that is sending all the wrong messages about every one of its values. It's attacking a whole bunch of values, whether it's staying in shul, whether it's drinking. Why shouldn't we just attack something like that and say, make sure that all shuls say we're going to stop this? So I'm, I'm not here to defend Kiddush Club. That's not my agenda. I also don't know. Somebody could tell me if they know of a shul with an egalitarian Kiddush Club, as far as I know, Kiddush Clubs are not generally institutions that invite women to participate. But this is this gets back to what my heart was saying about whack-a-mole. So we'll shut down the drinking in shul. We'll come down on it like a ton of bricks. You absolutely can't have Kiddush Club. And maybe more people will even be in for the Torah and the rabbi's drasha. And that's whatever advantage it is. But we have certainly heard, we have heard about it anecdotally in our communities. We, we didn't talk about Rabbi Tzvi Glock, who works with the organization Amudim, which deals with substance use and abuse more in the yeshivish or Haredi world and has seen you know things that, his, his observations and experiences in that world very much parallel what we're describing in the modern Orthodox world. This is not a modern Orthodox specific problem. And he has talked about the, the kind of post-shul before the meal kiddush that takes place in people's homes, again, with enormous amounts of expensive liquor. And even people who are going kiddush hopping from home to home before, after shul, but before the meal happens, which is to say that shutting down a kiddush club might solve certain problems like ditching the haftar, maybe solves that problem. But the problem of alcohol is not going to be solved by this ban or this space going dry. At the end of the day, the, you, you can't make enough rules, certainly not when you're dealing with adults and a whole community and adult modeling. You can't make enough rules and lock enough stuff down. And that's why it has to become about conversations about values and shifting communal culture and changing communal expectations and bringing everybody in and along. And again, and if you say that sounds completely naive and, and unrealistic and how could that possibly work, I tell you it's worked in a lot of places. Yeah, I also think that those are not alternatives. I think that in order to do something, if the decision would be that, you know, Kiddush clubs is the place to, you know, we really got to work on that. The only way that such an effort can be successful is if there's buy-in across the board. Very hard for an individual rabbi. It's obviously been done, but it's a challenge for an individual rabbi to make a decision and shut down the Kiddush club. The idea here is that, that whatever the intervention, it has to be done through buy-in that takes real kind of alliance building and shared values, as, as Dr. Schwartz said. Rabbi Hartstark, as a former shul rabbi, has maybe a different perspective on the urgency of shutting down Kiddush Club than I do. <laughs> well, what you're both saying really does make a lot of sense. Uh, we're now recording this. For me, it's less than 24 hours until Megillah reading. We're about to go into Purim. And given everything you just said, it's not really a fair question because obviously conversations and long-term intervention is very different from specific recommendations. That said, and this is going to be released after Purim, but that said, what would you tell parents or teachers who are having kids over for Purim Suda, what is the right way to model 
that behavior that both balances the ideals of Purim. I'm not going to say Adaloyada is an ideal of Purim, but it arguably is a halacha of Purim. How does one balance that idea, halachic or communal, of drinking on Purim with the values of making sure the kids don't get the wrong idea that alcohol in general is not something which we want to promote? Uh, I'll share, I'll share my, my own views are the two things that I would say is I think that uh, parents should not get drunk in a way that it's clear they're drunk ever. If they're drinking and it's besimcha, then they'll see that, that the kids will see that difference when it's like, it feels like a mitzvah. And I think that right now it's wrong for people to, for parents to get drunk in the presence of uh, their kids or a babe to do so in the presence of their talmidim, period. I also think that it's important for parents to know where their kids are, where they're going, and know that wherever they are, there is responsible supervision around. Um, and that's very important. Those two things are not always carefully adhered to. I think would make a big difference for Dr. Schwartz? I'm sorry. I know that there are parts of the community in which people are really getting drunk for the sake of Kiyom Mitzvah and like, what am I taking away their Kiyom Mitzvah for them? That's not what I'm seeing with my kids on Purim night. With my kids on Purim night, if drinking is going on, it's because Purim provides an excuse and a cover. And if that's the case, Purim doesn't have to be an excuse and a cover for behavior that's unseemly on Purim and would be unseemly every other day of the year. If my if you know if, if my kids were were existing in their perm on such an elevated level and then they got that suit and they wanted to get drunk, I would deal with that as that kind of problem. Right now I think we're dealing much more with the excuse problem. And I would very much echo what Ruby Hartstark said, which is that there is a a level of not knowing whether it's not knowing or choosing not to know or unwarranted trustingness. Your kid says, oh I'm going over to someone else's house with three other friends and we're popping popcorn and watching a movie pick up a phone and call the other house and ask the parents what's going on and find out if in fact, they're going to be parents home and three other kids popping popcorn and watching a movie, or there are no parents home. They're going to be 200 kids there reading the look cabinet. That'd be a really good thing to find out before and not after when you get the phone call from, from whoever. And it's not about, I don't trust my kid. And it's not about, well, don't they have to experiment in so many other ways we set up guidelines and protections and safety and ways to help our kids reach adulthood safely and healthily and not having made mistakes that that aren't you know that can't be undone um, and then in this area sometimes we see an attitude of like well everybody does it everybody experiments kids will be kids and uh, yeah not not really on board for that so I would say let, let's all please not use perm as an excuse and uh, and parents, need to be involved and know. And I will say that as a parent of my, my kids are age and age from 10 to 21, I've made these phone calls myself to sometimes my kids' terrible embarrassment. I say, I'm the one who's making the speeches all the time. I have to also pick up the phone call. And my youngest, my 10-year-old got invited this year to a Super Bowl viewing at his fifth grade friend's house. And I said, never too early to start. Picked up the phone and called the other fifth grade parent. To, not like I thought there was gonna be alcohol at the 10-year-old's Super Bowl party, but let's just start. Let's establish a communal norm that parents always call parents and, and find out what's going to be going on. That's so good. That sounds great. I want to ask you one more thing about Purim because, Dr. Schwartz, you mentioned if your kid was on the Madrego or on Purim, they're actually they're reaching the levels of Adeloyada actually intended by the Gemara, that they're reaching a higher spiritual level. I strongly doubt that most of our kids are doing that. However, about two years ago, I interviewed Dr. Zev Gantz, a friend of mine, about alcohol abuse on Purim. And Effectively, it came out from the podcast. It's actually episode 33 for those who want to listen to it. It came out that drinking on Purim is not such a great idea. Let's leave it at that. People can listen to the episode. But some people came up and actually criticized me. And they said, come on, when you're in yeshiva, 
when you're a guy in yeshiva, you're 18 years old, 19 years old, 20 years old, spending the year in Israel, drinking on Purim is such a major event. It's one of the highlights of the year, and you really do achieve great things. Yom Kippurim, etc., etc. Okay, I'm not going to say what I think about that, but I want to hear what you think about that, that statement. By telling people not to drink on Purim, you're ruining their year in Israel. Yeah, I, I have very vivid memories of my year in Israel as a seminary student riding back from wherever on a city bus on Purim together with some um, yeshiva bachram who were in this uh, altered state that was not an elevated state. I, I'm going to stick with what I said, which is I'm sure there are some people for whom it is an elevated state and many, many people for whom it's an excuse to get absolutely blackout drunk um, in ways that if you're lucky, don't result in anything worse than unseemly behavior on a city bus in Yerushalayim. And uh, yeah, I'm not your local Orthodox rabbi, so I don't have to pass again. <laughs> okay, Rabbi Arkstark? <laughs> Who might, may actually be that, though. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, what, what came to mind is that uh, my father's was the executive director of Chaim Berlin in the 50s, and Rav Putin was Rosh Hashiva. And he always he told me that the one time that he remembers himself, Raputner himself, getting drunk on Purim, he relayed back to uh, Raputner the drusha that he gave for uh, you know Ben Kessel also, or you know three years before that he did it, and that was his. And I felt like okay, I I get the message. Like uh, yeah, it could be that there's uh, somebody who's like that. This whole conversation has been about just basically most of us, and most of us uh, are not operating like that. So I also stick with what I said. I think that it's likely that those who make assumptions about their own students having been trained to be on these high levels of spiritual attainment, such that their drunkenness on Purim represents reaching into the higher spheres, it could well be that that is the height of yuhara, namely making unfounded religious assumptions about oneself. That aside, here once again in Ramat Beit Shemesh, on Purim, I see a lot of people who are drunk, and I'm sure some of them have tremendous spiritual insight as a result. There are plenty of examples of people not reaching the higher sphere, just vomiting in the gutter instead. That's the end of Purim. As a final point, can I just ask each of you to sum up, just give some final thoughts about this particular topic, whether it comes to drinking, whether it comes to binge drinking, substance abuse, gambling, all the various issues that we discussed, just something to leave our listeners with as we head out. Um, it, well, if I could, I actually want to also express a hakarana. So first of all, thank you to you for giving us the opportunity to speak with you. And I also want to, the work that we've done here is through Machon uh, Siach, which is a research arm of SAR High School that's uh, been supported by the Lindenbaum family in memory of Bill, the Catherine Lindenbaum. And I just want to express gratitude to them and the family for allowing us the opportunity to do this kind of work. Um, I think that... Um, the most important thing to me is the, the the power of a collective effort, the people being able to talk together, deliberate together. What I have taken away from this process is identifying a problem, bringing people together to think about it, realizing what you can discover through some research and the power of um, collective effort, um, I think is really enormous. And I think the idea of uh, the power of the, of the call, Seabor in general, um, you know, that's what Amistro is all about. And I think that being able to help ourselves grow on a collective level is the most important thing. So I would love to see us be able to uh, work in that kind of way to make our community stronger and stronger. Dr. Schwartz? I'll say two things. The first, echoing something Rabbi Hartstark just said, is the sense of how much expertise there is and how much there is to learn. I can't, yeah, I can't even fathom for how many years and decades, how many high school educators 
thought and spoke about substance use as a problem and how do we deal with it. And until we started connecting with these researchers and with prevention scientists, the idea that there are people who've done a lot of actual studying of what makes kids use substances or not use substances and how you can get them to not use substances. And there was so much for us to learn about that and our own flailing and probably largely ineffectual efforts for so long um, could be channeled so much more productively once we learn from the experts. And the second thing I'll say, which is the overarching umbrella to this, we got this got to this a little bit before with the kick in the gut. And maybe at some point we can we can talk more at length about this. Substance use turns out only to be a subset of the broader question, which is how do you get kids to do what we want them to do? And we as a community have so many different things we want them to do, whether that's making healthy choices in the realm of substances, but it's also following a parent's paths religiously and as Jews and their commitments and everything else. And the answer to that turns out to be that it's not that you convince them and it's not that you persuade them. It's actually that they feel positively connected to the adults around them and the adults communicate clearly what their values are. And the combination of those things, the bonding and the knowing what the adults want from you, if you feel connected to the adults around you, then you are more likely to choose to do the things they want. So it's both about bonding, which doesn't happen by shushkinning the kids and davening. It might happen by giving kids positive feedback about davening. And the clearly articulated standards are some of the things we've been speaking about here that you know parents and families don't always clearly communicate what their standards and values are around these things to their kids. And if all of that seems very obvious, well, of course you need to be bonded to the kids. And of course you need to clearly communicate what your hopes and expectations for them are. I actually think that there are a lot of ways in which in the in the day-to-day -day of life, we just sort of take for granted that kids know what we want, and we take for granted that kids know how much we appreciate and recognize and know the positive things that we're doing. And both of those things we've learned from this project that we continue to work on not taking for granted, both the bonding part and the communicating clearly what our values are in the hopes of eventually yielding kids who feel connected to the adults around them and then want to respond to the highest kinds of modeling that those adults have for them. It reminds me a lot of maybe the most famous phrase in Mesila Isharim by the Ramchal. He says that those things which we know and are most obvious are those things that we tend to forget. And that's certainly true in this case. Dr. Rivka Schwartz and Rabbi Tully Hartstark, thank you very much for joining me today. This is a very important topic, and hopefully we can make some change by people starting to make some of those interventions, starting to take some initiative, and at least paying attention to the issues rather than trying to pretend they don't exist. So thank you. Thank you for having Thanks us. Thanks for having us on. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamanides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, the Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, 
or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com.